Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Boy, there is so much in the news and so much I want to share with you today. We've got a huge show organized for the day. Professor Richard Wolf is going to drop by. We're going to be talking about, you know, what's going on with the markets and what, you know, how this works. Congressmember Karen Bass is going to be with us. She is going to be the new incoming head of the Congressional Black Caucus. Just a, a quick heads up of something for your activism, kind of an activism alert here. Kathy Craninger is a woman who has been working in the Trump administration. She participated in the zero tolerance policy that led to family separations on the border and the detention of immigrant children. Uh, she had oversight of parts of the response to Hurricane Marino, uh, Maria in Puerto Rico, uh, both apparently complete disasters. She has no experience as a consumer advocate. She has no experience with consumer finance. And Mick Mulvaney wants to put her in charge of the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau. A, a right-wing Trump hack. This is not a good thing for, uh, for consumers in America. Meanwhile, Huawei is a company that probably you've not heard about. Most Americans don't know much about Huawei. Huawei, H-U-A-W-E-I is a Chinese company. It's the second largest manufacturer of cell phones in the world. And they also manufacture equipment that facilitates cell phone communication, the stuff that you use in the back office for 3G, 4G, and 5G networks. And the concern that the United States has been um, sharing since the Obama administration is that Huawei is building back doors into their phones and into their communications equipment so that the government of China can spy on the communications of everybody using a Weiwei phone or using or any of the companies, any of the phone companies that are using Weiwei equipment. Now, there have been, you know, arguments that that's the case. There have been arguments mostly made by Weiwei that that's not the case. But, you know, that's that's what's going on right now. And uh, Weiwei in, in also apparently has been selling these cell phones into Iran, which is a violation of U.S. sanctions. So Meng Wanzhou, who is the daughter of the founder of Weiwei and is now the chief financial officer, the number two person in the company, being groomed apparently to take over for her father. She's the oldest child of the founder. His name is Reng Zhenfei. She was in Canada yesterday and she was arrested on a U.S. warrant for selling cell phones to Iran, apparently. Uh, you know, we don't have all the details because most of these documents are not public. But this is just, you know, gleaned from news reports. And she's being deported to the United States from Canada. And China is just having a fit over this. So if you are noticing the stock market seems to be going down today, it may have something to do with this, too, in addition to just the, the broad, frightening incompetence of Donald Trump. But this is, this is a big deal. And this has the potential. I mean, you know, China is militarized, has militarized the South China Sea. They are denying all the other countries in the area's historic right to the waters beyond their borders and saying, no, all these waters are ours. 
this could be a military confrontation. Uh, Donald Trump could be leading us to a war that none of us want. I mean, this could be really, really bad. Professor Richard Wolf is with us, the economist, co-founder of Democracy at Work, the author most recently of Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, Essays on the Global Economic Meltdown. His website's democracyatwork.info and rdwolf with two Fs dot com. And you can tweet him at Prof Wolf. Dr. Wolf, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tom. It's been a while, so I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to have you back, and thank you for being on the program. So the yield curve inverted yesterday or the day before. This has a lot of the writers over the Financial Times flipped out. This, you know, Basically, the, the long-term bonds are now paying less than short-term bonds are, 10-year versus 2-year or 3-year kind of thing. And typically, this is, you know, presages a recession. The Dow is down 483 points as we speak. What does all this mean? And what does it mean to the average citizen? Well, let's start with the inverted yield curve. Normally, a lender will demand a higher rate of return the longer you want the loan to last, because that the longer the loan lasts, the more things can happen that might make it impossible for you to pay back and to protect himself. The lender says, okay, you pay me more for a 10-year loan than you would for a two-year loan. But if you believe that two years from now, the economy is really going to be in bad shape, then you're not happy to lend to a person for a two-year loan because you're really worried that that borrower won't be able to repay. And so you demand more for the short-term loan because of your feeling of bad times coming than you do for long. And so when we see that happen, it's a sign that lenders, whose job it is to look at this situation, are seeing real trouble in the short run coming. And so that's why it's a recession signal and why people pay attention to it. It's been a pretty good signal in the past. So it's one more piece of evidence that our economic system here, which has a downturn on average every four to seven years, is due for one. And so we're pretty clear now, the majority of observers, that either in 2019 or latest 2020, we're going to have a, a downturn. And the only real question now is, how bad will it be and how long will it last? If it's anything like the one in 2008, we are in very deep trouble. But even if it isn't, it's going to be trouble for Mr. Trump, trouble for the Republicans, because they're the ones in power when it hits. So they will get likely a good portion of the blame. Now, does this have any relation to the U.S. trade deficit? It's now at a 10-year high, and Trump's whole shtick two years ago when he was running for president was, I'm the guy who's going to get down the trade deficit. We're going to get it down with tariffs and jawboning and all this other stuff. It obviously has not worked out that way. What does the trade deficit mean, and how does it interact with or how is it related to the possibility of cycles of boom and bust here in the U.S. economy? Well, it's always the case that the ups and downs of the trade deficit are the result of many factors. All the factors that affect how many foreign goods Americans buy and all the factors that affect how many uh, foreign people and companies will buy American goods. And so you'd have to make a long list. That's why when politicians tell you they're going to do this or that and it's going to fix the problem, you should take that with an enormous grain of salt. They don't have that kind of power. They can't control that many variables. And so when Mr. Trump said he had the magic bullet with tariffs or Lord knows what uh, to fix this problem, everybody should have uh, grinned into their beer uh, rather than take it seriously. And what the recent numbers show is that, as has happened so many times, Mr. Trump's bravado, his boasts, his telling you how he's different and what he's going to do is going to make all the difference, was the kind of empty rhetoric uh, that's now revealed because the trade deficit not only did not go away, it's actually worse than it was when he made those statements starting a year and a half or so ago uh, and repeated them so often. So it's really one more lesson uh, in the fact that uh, politicians like to boast what they're going to do, like to take credit for what goes well, and then point the finger at somebody else uh, when it doesn't work out that well. As to the recession, yes, it's a very serious problem, mainly because foreigners are not buying American goods. 
They're not doing it in the growth that we had hoped for. That's partly because the economies in the rest of the world are in the same kind of slowdown that is now coming to the United States, so they're not buying. It's partly because they're imposing tariffs in retaliation to Mr. Trump so that their people have to pay a tariff just like Americans have to pay a tariff after he sets it on foreign goods coming here so the foreigners are not buying American goods. It's the, it's the literally the reaction to Mr. Trump's imposition of tariffs as he boasts and panders to his base. So we're just seeing that Mr. Trump not only doesn't prevent the economic downturn that our system keeps visiting upon us, but in a peculiar way, he's actually making it worse. So to my question of what impact does this have on the average working person? Well, I think the bottom line is an economic downturn is always a catastrophe in capitalism. It actually threatens everybody, the big corporation, the medium corporation, uh, and the average worker. But the problem is we don't all have the same capacity to cope with an economic downturn. Corporations can solve their problems by laying off large numbers of workers, by cutting back production for a while, by parking their money overseas or in government bonds until the bad times pass. In a word, the higher you are in the pyramid, the easier it is to offload the problems of an economic downturn onto those below you. And so what happens is it accumulates, worst of all, for the mass of employees whose job conditions or whose very jobs are going to be threatened in this downturn. And again, the basic question, how bad will it be, how many people will be affected, and how long will it last? But the mass of the American working people are the ones who are going to bear the burden of most of the adjusting that this downturn is going to impose on us. How does this fit into a Marxist critique of capitalism? I'm assuming it just kind of follows along. And what is the solution to this? Well, I think that the basic critique has always been, and not just by Marxists, but by anyone with, with a critical mentality, is that this is a system that is fundamentally unstable. For me to be able to say that in every capitalism, starting with England in the 18th century and spreading all over the world, every four to seven years there's been an economic downturn, and the only difference is how long they last and how deep they cut, with the worst ones being the 30s and, and the ones since 2008. The answer is capitalism visits upon us a level of instability. Well, here's how I do it in my classes. I lean across the podium and I say to my students, if you live with a roommate as unstable as capitalism, you would have moved out long ago. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We live in a system that, that we ought to have questioned, not only because it makes for such unequal distribution of the fruits of all of our work, but it has an instability built into it that we have tried for, for 300 years to cope with. We've tried every kind of fiscal policy, monetary policy, sure. Keynesian economics. We haven't been able to overcome it. That's why we're in one now. now, now we're facing another one. What preceded capitalism was feudalism, no? Which is a very stable system. You know, you're born on the bottom, you live on the bottom, you die on the bottom, and that's the 95% of the people, right? That's right. It's a very stable, you know, I'm not saying that it had all wonderful things, but it did not have the instability of our system. So are we moving back toward feudalism now? Well, one of the reactions to the instability of capitalism is precisely that. One of the things we're seeing in the right-wing movements around the world is a desire to have some sort of authoritarian government, strong man at the top. We even have that in our country around Trump, somebody who's going to do something about the instability that has hurt so many people uh, by imposing some kind of stability. And of course, they can't really do that without questioning the system. They're not prepared to do that. So everybody's waiting for the stability without facing the fact that with the economic system we have, that's not available and no strong man is going to bring it either. If we do away with all worker protections and if we do away with the entire social safety net, which is what the Republicans want to do, how is the average worker different from a serf in the 1600s? He's not, and that's exactly the direction in which we are going. And that's part of what I meant before, when we offload the problems at the top, 
the protections that are being taken away, they at least offset some of that offloading. But as we take those away, as we make Social Security less supportive, as we do away with the regulations, we're making it easier, even if that's not the intent, for corporations to push off the burden of economic downturns from capitalism onto the mass of people, substituting the old for the old secure jobs with benefits, the new kind of job, which is insecure, has few benefits, where you work at the pleasure of an employer who fluctuates with the cycles of the system, that's right. You're going to get the millennial people who we now bemoan having not enough money to sustain this economy. It's a self-reinforcing cycle of downturn because the system is in trouble but can't question itself. We keep looking for a magic bullet, but it's really because we don't want to yet face the system we have. And the big question, can't we do better? Yeah. Amen. And I know you offer a number of solutions in, in your writings. Your most recent book, Capitalism's Crisis, deepens essays on the global economic meltdown. Professor Richard Wolff. Dr. Wolff, thank you so much for dropping by today. Thank you, Tom. And I look forward to talking with you again. Me too. DemocracyWork.info, rdwolf.com. With the holidays coming up fast, you're probably wondering what to get that special man in your life, right? Socks? Another wallet? How about something he'll really enjoy? A thoughtful and practical gift from Harry's that he's sure to love all year long. Harry's makes lasting quality products at a super reasonable price. German-engineered blades for as low as two bucks a piece. As a special offer for my listeners, we've partnered with Harry's to give you $5 off any shave set, including limited edition holiday sets, when you go to harrys.com slash tomthom. Plus, you'll get free shipping. This offer is for new and returning customers and is only available for the holidays. Each Harry's shaving set comes with an ergonomic weighted handle with optional engraving, German-engineered five-blade cartridges for a close, comfortable shave, Harry's incredible rich foaming shave gel, a travel cover to protect your blades, and a handsome holiday gift box. Or treat yourself. Redeem Harry's trial offer to experience their incredible shave. Get your holiday shopping done early. Free shipping ends on December 12th, so act now. Go to harrys.com slash tomthom to get $5 off a shave set while supplies last. That's harrys.com slash tom. Tom Hartman here with you, and on the line with us is Congressmember Pramila Jayapal of Washington State, a member of the U.S. Congress. She is the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. She represents the 7th District of Washington. So I read this extraordinary piece that you wrote in the New York Review of Books, I believe it is. Okay. Yeah, and you talked about how your parents used all their savings to send you across the ocean from India at the age of 16. You got your U.S. citizenship in the year 2000. You started the largest immigrant advocacy organization in Washington state. You're the first South Asian American woman in the House of Representatives and one of only 12 members of the 115th Congress who are proud naturalized citizens. This is great. The, the rest of the piece is a real brilliant deep dive into immigration and the benefits of immigration and how we need to reboot our system. Where should we start with all this? Well, I think, you know, the reason I wrote the piece is because I feel like the conversation has been taken so far backwards and so far to the right by Donald Trump and people who are really determined to take our attention away from making sure this country works for everybody and also recognizing our history on immigration and, and sort of the benefits of immigrants to our country and to our identity and to our future. And so, the piece is called A New Moral Imagination on Immigration, and it really tries to lay out a little bit of history because a lot of people don't know the history and a lot of the lies that are being told by the Trump administration really skate right over the facts of our history and how our laws have come into being. And then incredible lack of updating of our laws to really reflect the needs of our economy and our moral values. And so it takes a big picture look at what is that moral framework? How do we recognize that the United States has always had actually a dueling response to immigration? One side that, frankly, has been very bigoted, very racist in terms of how our immigration laws came into being, and the other that has been extremely generous and very much based the identity of the country on one that has been forward-thinking, on welcoming people to our country to build it and to help uh, make it better. And so those two have been in conflict just about every generation, and we've had to fight it out every single time. And now we need to understand that this 
scapegoating and targeting of immigrants is part of a plan of the right, extreme right, because actually this has always been a bipartisan issue, until Donald Trump came along. That doesn't mean that we haven't had problems with immigration under Democratic presidents. And you might have seen, as a proud Democrat, I did still call out um, Democrats for not having taken up this issue and for, you know, in some ways having given in to some of the false paradigms that are being put out there. But really trying to make a case for what comprehensive humane immigration reform looks like, trying to fight back against the lies that are out there. But at the core, understanding how important uh, immigration is to our moral values, to our identity, and really to the um, to the future of this country. Yeah. So um, that's, yeah, I think it's a complex issue. There's a lot in there in that piece. It was supposed to be a 1,600-word piece, and it's a 3,000-word piece yeah. um, because I, I think there are a lot of pieces to this. But, you know, we got to be strong as Democrats, um, and hopefully there are some willing Republicans still left to come on board. I think the good thing that I point out in the piece is that as much as Trump tried to use the last election and, and frankly, his entire two years and his campaign – to really target and, and, you know, scapegoat immigrants. I think the American people are not there. And there are actually a lot of uh, signs and now new research coming out about voter data that shows that he may have turned off millennials for uh, decades to come, that in many states, while it might have worked in one or two places, the majority of Americans rejected it, and that actually, according to the polling, approval for immigration and continuing to have a generous immigration policy is at an all-time high right. and at an all-time low in terms of restricting immigration. Yeah. So hopefully we can use that backlash and really create a different way of thinking about this issue. And hopefully we can push Democrats to be bold, to embrace immigration, not to be scared of it, not to shy away from it, and to call slander slander and lies lies. Yeah. ICE is threatening the state of New Jersey. They used the same phrase that they did against California last year. They said ICE will have no choice but to conduct at-large arrests in local neighborhoods and at work sites and will inevitably result in additional collateral arrests. They issued the, the exact same language against New Jersey yesterday. You were down on the Mexican border earlier this week. I think it was on December 1st. That's not ICE. I realize that's border protection. But what do we do with all this? I mean, it's turned into a sane free-for-all, it seems, particularly with all these people on the right and ICE. Yeah, it's a manufactured crisis. It, it is a crisis, but it was manufactured by Trump. And so we have thousands of people on the border. And the worst part about this is that they, many of them, particularly those from Honduras, about 50% of the caravan has been people from Honduras, are fleeing horrendous conditions in their country that the United States has actually been a part of allowing to continue to happen through our own foreign policy. But these folks are not just seeking the American dream. They're really fleeing reigns of terror. And we have limited the ability, the Trump administration has limited the ability for people to legitimately seek asylum. That is legal as much as they'd like to say it isn't. And so we have a way to solve this. We've had actually larger numbers coming to the border and seeking hmm. asylum at other times. We just have to be willing to do it. Yeah, it's sort of at a low right now, I believe. It has been for a couple of years. Congressmember Pramila Jayapal represents the 7th District of Washington. Jayapal.house.gov, the website, and you can tweet her at Rep Jayapal, J-A-Y-A-P-A-L. Congressmember, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it's great, it. great talking with you. Tom Harmon here with you. On the line with us is Congressmember Karen Bass. She represents the 37th District of California and is the chair-elect, in other words, will be the chair in, as the new Congress is sworn in in, in uh, early January, of the Congressional Black Caucus for the 116th Congress. Her website, bass.house.gov. You can tweet her at Rep. Karen Bass. Uh, Representative Karen Bass, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much for joining us. So tell us about where the Congressional Black Caucus is at right now and where you see it going under your leadership as we go into this next congressional two-year cycle. Well, absolutely. Well, we are going into the cycle not only with 55 members of the Congressional Black Caucus, but with Democrats being in the majority. And that means out of the 55 members, 
five will be chairs of full committees, and 28 members of the Black Caucus will be chairs of subcommittees. So that covers an array of areas of policy from Homeland Security, financial services, education, science, etc. So I think that we're online to have a very big impact on Congress this year. How do you see that playing out? I mean, we've seen an assault over the over the last decade or so. Well, really in an ongoing way, I suppose you could even go all the way back to 1990. An assault on civil rights legislation, an assault on voting rights legislation, an assault both by the Supreme Court and by Congress in many regards. Um, do you see uh, Congress right now, particularly with the Republican-controlled Senate and a grifter in the White House, for lack of a better phrase, <laughs> do you see the, your role as kind of holding back the dike, you know, holding back the, the dam, preventing the flood of destructive legislation? Or, is, or do you think that it's possible to actually advance a progressive caucus that is more inclusive, that brings Americans together around issues or past issues of race or however I, I should appropriately say that? I, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about about. I absolutely do. And you know what? I think it's all of the above because we are absolutely going to have to be on the defense, but I also think on the offense. So, for example, voting rights. Uh, because of the Supreme Court decision a few years ago, essentially gutting voting rights, the Supreme Court passed the ball back to Congress to put forward uh, new legislation. And so that is going to be an item that is very high up on our agenda. Uh, and then we're going to have to play defense as well. You know, a lot of the cuts and uh, rollbacks in civil rights um, legislation and regulations that this administration has done, and you can go down the line in terms of the cabinet secretaries and essentially the orders that this administration have, has given them to gut the very purpose of their agencies, whether we are talking about health and human services, Department of Justice, education, etc. So it's going to be defense and it's going to be offense. And having said that, I am hopeful that we will be able to get uh, certain things done. Yeah, we're also seeing this now with Mick Mulvaney running the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau. I mean, it's just, it's, which, which brings up the, the point that, you know, African-Americans are not just uh, concerned about issues of race. I mean, you know, we're all people here. We're, you know, works and, uh, you know, workplace issues, banking issues, family issues, um, you know, issues that, that I mean, right across the spectrum. Um, again, we have this, this huge difference between a Republican Party that, for example, in Michigan, the Good Citizens of Michigan had a, a ballot initiative that they had all ready to go on the ballot that would raise the minimum wage and increase benefits. And the Republicans passed a law that said the exact same thing so that the ballot initiative got bumped off the ballot. And then as soon as the election happened, right now, well, in fact, I think it was yesterday, the Republican House in, in Michigan, my home state, passed a law saying that we're gutting the law that we passed two months ago. And so it was like, I mean, it's like the, the Republicans are in this relentless, never-ending uh, search for ways to take more money away from working people and give it to their billionaire patrons. What is the Congressional Black Caucus's position on these things? And, and how are you working with other caucuses like the Congressional Progressive Caucus, for example, and other groups to bring about some a sense of not just fairness, but a, a reasonable standard of living for working people in the, in the United States. Well, absolutely. I mean, a couple of other examples. Look at what happened in Wisconsin when they elected a Democratic governor. And so in the lame duck session before the new governor takes over, they decided they were going to re reduce the power that the governor had. And yeah. so the interesting thing about the Republican Party now, and frankly, I believe that the Republican Party has been taken over by an extremist element, is one thing that is consistent in their policies is a rollback of democracy. So instead of expanding the, the voters, instead of making it easier for people to vote, they want to do the exact opposite. There's the race in North Carolina. The Republicans are always shouting about voter fraud. Well, talk about voter fraud. How about the guy that was going door to door collecting ballots and only turning in the ones that were, that, you know, that, that were in favor of him? So we have a congressional seat now that might have, they might have to have an entirely new election because the process was so corrupted. Or in Georgia, where the Secretary of State, the guy who's counting the ballots, is also running for election. Some of the things that have happened this year regarding voter suppression and voter fraud that the Republicans have done really almost is what you hear about in other countries. And so I think educating people in general about the significant rollbacks and assault 
on democracy. Hopefully, the resistance movement that was launched the day after the inauguration, I think, is absolutely delivered. I think it delivered the midterm election. But we have to keep this going. So we got one-third of the way there. And in 2020, hopefully, we'll get the other two-thirds, which is the Senate and the White House. Because until we have all three, it won't be able – we won't be able to pass – comprehensive, uh, qualitative uh, uh, legislation, and we also won't be able to stop the judges. I do believe we'll be able to get a lot done going one-third, but clearly we need to go the rest of the way in 2020. Yeah. What are your thoughts on Nancy Pelosi and and the Democrats in Congress uh, passing legislation basically for display? Um, you know, uh, Medicare for all, for example, there's no way the Senate would go along with that because it's controlled by Republicans. There's no way Trump would sign it. In. Well, actually, Trump might do anything. God only knows. But, you know, there's no way Mitch McConnell's going to allow that to happen. So, um, uh, you know, there's I, I understand that there's like some uh, discussion about, OK, do we do we pass the things that actually have a possibility of making it into law, even if they're kind of milk toast? Um, but but they're important and necessary. Or do we pat, or do we go really big and, and, and show the American people this is the agenda that you'll have in 2020 if you put Democrats into office? Or, you know, can we walk and chew gum? Can we do both? Well, I definitely think we can walk and chew gum. And let me just give you an example. Uh, we need to uh, repair the damage that has been done to the Affordable Care Act. So there are certain things that we need to do that I believe we should pass, and hopefully the Senate will be able to go along. Now, having said that, you know, I believe that health care is a basic right. I think we should view health care just like you view K-12 through education. You don't even think about that. Now, you can go to private school if you want, but you know that you're guaranteed an education in this country, and that's the way I think health care should be. But it's not going to be that way tomorrow. And for people who don't have insurance, I know they might like to, to see – Medicare for all, but they need to see a doctor tomorrow. So I think that we can chew gum and walk at the same time. I'm sure we will do some legislation that might be more symbolic, might be more messaging, but I absolutely believe that the way we are going to approach legislating and governing is that we actually believe in government. When you have a party that really people ran for election to dismantle government, then it was very hard for them when they were in power. Uh, I think it will be easier for us when we're in power because Democrats, you know, believe in government, believe in the institutions. People didn't run to be elected to destroy the very institution that they joined. We're talking with uh, Representative Karen Bass, the uh, U.S. Congress member from California's 37th District, who was just elected the uh, chair, will be the chair in the incoming Congress of the Congressional Black Caucus, bass.house.gov and Rep. Karen Bass uh, on Twitter. Tell me about how the caucuses work in in the House of Representatives. Is it possible to be a member of the Progressive Caucus and the Black Caucus? And if so, what kind of overlap do you have there? And are there other uh, caucuses that we should know of that are doing good, you know, progressive work? Sure. Uh, I'm a member of both, for example. Uh, There's a lot of overlap between the Black Caucus and other caucuses. So, for example, a lot of members of the Black Caucus are, are members of the Progressive Caucus. A lot of members are members of the New Democrat New Democratic Caucus, uh, which focuses more on business and trade. And so you find members that we have a, a member of the Black Caucus that's a blue dog, which is the conservative caucus. Wow. So you have the diversity within the Black Caucus, just like you do any other caucus. That That is great. It's it's fascinating stuff. And, and I, I wish you the very best of luck. You've got a, a big job ahead of you in the next two years. And I, I, I wish you all the very best. Uh, Congress member Karen Bass, thanks so much for dropping by today. Thanks for having me on. It has been great getting to know you and great talking with you. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. You spend every day in your office chair. That's over 2,000 hours a year. So if you're spending all that time in the wrong chair, is it any wonder why you're sore and tired at the end of the day? Ditch that no-name, one-size-fits-all superstore chair and trade up to the X chair. When you feel the X chair difference, you'll understand. My X chair is the most stylish chair I've ever owned. Trust me, this is not your grandfather's office chair. Switching to the X chair, I'm more productive and have more energy. I love my X chair and you will too. X chair is now on sale for the holidays, so buy one for yourself and one for someone you love. X chair is now on sale for $100 off. So call 844-4X-CHAIR or go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to save $100. 
And here's a special deal just for my listeners. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and they'll even throw in a free footrest. Go to XChairTom or call 844-4XChair and use the code TOM for a free footrest. That's XChairTom.com, 844-4XChair. You're listening to Tom Hartman. There's a few other things here in the news. The Veterans Affairs Diversity Chief, her name was Georgia Coffey, and she's a career senior executive, uh, was. She now works for Lockheed Martin. She resigned in disgust over this event. This is consequential. When Donald Trump came out and said that there's some very fine people among the Nazis in Virginia, in Charlottesville, the head of the VA came out and said he was horrified by Trump's statement, or words to that effect. And so she was asking the Veterans Department of Veterans Affairs to issue a forceful condemnation, not of Trump, but of the Nazis. Just to say, you know, we here at the VA, which by the way, 40% of their employees, there's 380,000 people who work for the Veterans Administration, 40% of them are minorities. To say, we here at the VA are not happy with Nazis marching in our streets. We don't think Nazis marching in our streets is a good thing. We don't think there's very fine people among the Nazis. And when she proposed this, that the VA should say this, the VA fought back and said, no, we're not going to say that. And you're not going to say that. And they essentially punished her. And so she left. Olyat, he's her boss, told Coffee to stand down, the emails show. A person familiar with their dispute who spoke on the condition of anonymity told the Post that Olyat was enforcing a directive from the White House. So the White House tells the VA to shut that woman up who's talking about, we don't like Nazis here at the Veterans Administration. This isn't today's Washington Post. So we have that. And then also Mark Lamont Hill. He's an academic, an activist, a media personality. He's a commentator on CNN. He's African-American. He was given the honor of addressing the United Nations at their commemoration of the International Day of Solidarity with the Palestinian people. And in his closing words, he said that we need to support Palestinian freedom, quote, from the river to the sea, which means basically all across Israel. And is effectively saying, you know, no more apartheid, let's have a two-state solution. Which, you know, most reasonable people have been calling for for a long, long time. And what did CNN do? They fired him. This is the tail end. There's a great piece about this in today's Washington Post by Nora Erekat. A long history of African-Americans who dare to speak out on international issues basically being stepped on. From Paul Robeson in 1956, being dragged before the House on American Affairs Committee. In 1967, blacklisting Muhammad Ali over his opposition to the Vietnam War. To Andrew Young, whose wife I knew, she was amazing. Andrew Young, African-American mayor of Atlanta, became the U.S., the first black U.N. ambassador from the United States. And when he informally met with the PLO, the Israelis went crazy and Young was removed. Our first black U.N. representative. It's amazing. Tom Harbin here with you. I was just talking about Mark Lamont Hill was fired from CNN for speaking to the International Day of Solidarity with the Palestinian people at the United Nations, which is a great honor, actually. But he called for the establishment of a two-state solution, basically. And you don't do that, apparently. North Carolina. This is bizarre. In North Carolina, the state representative, David Lewis, the Republican who chairs the Elections Committee, filed a bill in the North Carolina House of Representatives uh, day before yesterday. Keep in mind, this is the state where, there, where this alleged vote uh, election fraud happened. And the bill is like, this is kind of weird language, right? Here's the language of the bill. In the even-numbered year, the chair shall be the member of the political party with the second highest number of registered affiliates. Now, what does that mean? What they're saying is that in odd-numbered years, this is what this legislation says, the people who are in charge of all of the elections in the state would change every year the chair, the person in charge. On odd-numbered years, it would be, the, it would be a, a person who is appointed by the political party that has the most number of registered voters. Well, North Carolina is the Democrats, has been for a long time and will be for a long time. 
More Democrats registered to vote in North Carolina. So that means in the odd-numbered years, a Democrat would run the elections in North Carolina at the local level, all, all across the state, every single place. And in the even-numbered years, a Republican would run the elections. Now, what happens in even-numbered years in the United States? We have elections! You know, think about it, 1980, 82, 84, you know, to 2018, 2016, 2014. In even-numbered years, we have elections. In odd-numbered years, we don't. So the Republicans in North Carolina are pushing legislation that would say that on the years that we have elections, Republicans are running the elections. On the years that we don't have elections, Democrats get to run the elections. There's something fundamentally wrong with this. This goes back to this, have your friends figured out yet that the Republican Party is a scam? Sean Hannity. <laughs> this is hysterical. He, he posted on Twitter, in all caps, CHRISTMAS IS UNDER SIEGE! What's the siege? Well, St. Susanna Parish in Dedham, Massachusetts, put a baby Jesus on their nativity scene inside a dog crate, basically, a two-by-three-foot dog cage, a cage. And the pastor told the local news outlet when they were asked about it, when he was asked about it, he said, 65 million refugees worldwide seeking a better way of life. And we were wondering what that might look like 2,000 years ago if this family encountered the same dynamics that are taking place in our country right now. This is Reverend Steve Jashoma told the station. So what does Hannity say? <laughs> this is historical. Tonight on Hannity, we'll expose how Christmas is being politicized. Now Christmas is under siege. A Massachusetts church puts baby Jesus in a cage to make a political statement. Watch now. So on Twitter, there is some of the replies. This is from Jordan. He says, how is it that you're more upset by a church pointing out what's happening at the border than you are about what's actually happening at the border? Another Chris Wernowski says, please stop angering the people at my grandma's nursing home. Joe D. writes, tonight on Hannity, we'll be exposing how Christmas is being politicized by politicizing Christmas on Fox News. Dr. Bryson Wolf says, so the church is doing a war on Christmas by reminding us that Jesus was a refugee, immigrant, and asylum seeker in his life. You remember that what you did for the least of my people line, right? Seems like the war on Christ more than anything else, not a war on Christmas. Jeff Abbott tweeted, don't you have a Starbucks cup to be mad at? Beal, relax, cowboy, it's not a real baby. Angela Martinez writes, uh, Christmas is just fine. It's families that are under siege. And then Scott says, brought to you by the network that has an annual war on Christmas two-month special every year. Our book today for the uh, Tom Harbin Book Club is The Next Generation City, The Big Promise of Our Mid-Sized Metros by Mick Cornett. We're, we're reading from the foreword by Richard Florida. A funny thing happened in the early years of the millennium. A rising global economy alongside powerful new technologies that connected corners of the globe in an instant would make it possible for us to live and work virtually anywhere we wanted. It seemed all but certain that the forces that were connecting our world would flatten it too and continue to push people apart. Well, those forces did the opposite. They drove us closer together, not farther apart. They brought us back to cities and to urban life. The 20th century was the century of suburbanization, the flight from cities of people and industry, commerce and jobs, as far from downtowns as our cars and highways could take us. The American dream was then a vision of a big house and a car, followed by a bigger house, two cars and more. A big plot of land you could call your own. It was life on America's next great frontier, what the urban historian Kenneth Jackson called the crabgrass frontier. As a young boy growing up in New Jersey, I watched my hometown of Newark decline. I saw the city erupt into riots. I saw the factory where my father worked shutter. I saw the newspaper where my mom worked, the Star Ledger, ringed with barbed wire fences. Between 1950 and 1980, Boston lost almost 30% of its population. After the Boeing bust, Seattle's unemployment reached as high as 25%. In 1975, New York City, while still arguably the world's most powerful global center of business and corporate finance, nearly declared bankruptcy. One of my professors at Rutgers wrote an article provocatively titled The City as Sandbox, which argued that American cities had become hollowed-out shells, having lost their core economic functions to the suburbs. But now, shockingly, the 21st century has been deemed the century of the city. So far, it's fairly clear that large cities and metropolitan areas have benefited disproportionately from this urban shift. The first two decades of this urban revival have been marked by winner-take-all urbanism, we're in a relatively small number of superstar cities like New York and London and knowledge centers like San Francisco, Boston, and Seattle 
have attracted the largest concentration of talent, ideas, investments, and economic activity. However, the reality is that the new urban knowledge economy is not determined by size alone. In fact, population size and population growth are actually poor predictors of innovation and economic growth. And as our largest urban centers have become increasingly expensive, unaffordable, and divided, they price out and drive away the very diversity that powered their innovativeness and growth to begin with. As the late great urbanist Jane Jacobs once told me, when a place gets boring, even the rich people leave. It's a big mistake to write off small places. College towns in particular have boomed as have a host of smaller and mid-sized cities, even rural areas. Size may be an advantage, but it's not the sole determinant of success. Smaller places that cultivate innovation and creativity have abundant natural or urban amenities and connect to larger centers in the United States and the world are thriving. The reality of our time is that the world is spiky, not flat. While technology may have flattened access to ideas and information, the reality of our time is that access to opportunity has become increasingly spiky in this urban century. And this spikiness occurs across all scales. Some large places, the ones we all know and talk about, are doing fine, but others are struggling. And the same goes for small and medium-sized cities in rural areas. Some thrive, some coast along, and many others decline. After years of study, I've concluded that the key thing that distinguishes the thriving places of any and all size is surprisingly simple. Successful places are intentional. They undertake efforts to leverage and build upon their own unique assets. They mobilize their anchor institutions, their own civic organizations, and their people. They build true public-private partnerships. And large or small, they create a genuine quality of place that all can see and feel. As I travel to cities like Milwaukee and Des Moines and Boise and Oklahoma City, my former hometown of Pittsburgh, my wife's hometown of Detroit, and countless others across America, I see the incredible progress many so-called flyover places have made. And now I watch as even smaller communities like Bentonville or El Dorado, Arkansas, the latter chronicled in these very pages, do much the same to leverage their own knowledge assets or lakefronts and hillsides or arts communities to create their own renaissance. It can be done. It is being done. It does, however, take money and smart policy and great local leaders. But above all, it takes intentional leadership to mobilize the energy of the community to do it. In the decade or so since writing The Rise of the Creative Class, I watched Mick Cornett mobilize his community in just that way during his four terms as mayor of Oklahoma City. If you've heard of him at all, it's likely from the time he famously energized his community by putting the entire town on a diet to encourage fitness and vitality, long before wellness became a watchword for the new urbanization. His accomplishments go far beyond that single story, however. Cornett was the longest serving in a long line of fiscally conservative Oklahoma City mayors that have understood the importance of a city investing in this new urban talent-driven age. And he goes on to talk about that, the next American city. When do you want to spot that burglar? When he's casing your home or after he's in? Ask John, whose blink camera alerted him of burglars trying to break in while he and his family were home. Or Shannon, whose blink camera caught a thief stealing packages. Both times, video clips from blink were sent to police to help convict the crooks. Blink motion-activated indoor and outdoor cameras are wire-free, set up in minutes, and run on two AA batteries that last up to two years. And if you're traveling over the holidays, Blink's live feed option lets you monitor your home and check on your pets from anywhere using the Blink smartphone app. No contracts, no subscriptions, totally affordable, and Blink works with Alexa. Blink camera systems make great holiday gifts, and they're a brilliant way to monitor your holiday package deliveries. Visit BlinkProtect.com slash holiday. That's BlinkProtect.com slash holiday. Visit BlinkProtect.com slash holiday. Once again, BlinkProtect.com slash holiday. Blink is an Amazon company. Ken with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. In the line with us is the author of Sideswiped, former congressman from Ohio, Bob Nay. Bob, welcome back. Hi, Tom. How are you? It's always great to hear your voice, Bob. I'm fine. So what's happening in the world that we need to know about? Well, let's talk oil, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS as he's known, stock markets, and the Chinese. How about that for an cool. intro? Well, the first part is Mohammed bin Salman, MBS as he's known, and it's heating up even more than before. 
of course, there was a resolution which Bernie Sanders has been trumpeting for a long time to take us out of the process of funding Saudi Arabia and the proxy war in Yemen, where Saudi Arabia is on one side and Iran's on the other. And of course, the president said, well, we need Saudi Arabia, which we actually don't, to fight Iran. And I think everybody that knows the issue knows that. But it's heated up again because now the CIA director finally came over and then talked about uh, what was the evidence that they have, which we don't know what it is. Okay, I'm going to put you on hold, Bob, and we're going to see if we can figure out what's going on here. Four Republican senators, including Ted Cruz and Jim Imhoff, have introduced the Wall Act, a new bill that would authorize $25 billion to fully fund Trump's border wall. They want to squeeze that $25 billion out of the rest of us. This is totally strange. You know, you say, where, where are you going to get the money? Oh, yeah, we're going to get it out of the child tax credit. We're going to get it out of the earned income tax credit. We're going to get it out of food stamps. We're going to get it, you know, and we're, we're going to get it by increasing the minimum fines on illegal border crossers. Like refugees from Honduras can actually pay a fine. Really? And this is going to pay for Trump's wall, his $25 billion wall, and a minimum penalty for visa overstays. I mean, this is pathetic. Trump goes on to say, right now, only a child needs a Social Security number to be eligible for the refundable child tax credit. The Wall Act would require the parent to have a Social Security number as well. So right now, if the child is a U.S. citizen and their parent is not, I mean, this is just a total screaming mess. And uh, I don't know what to do with it. But Ted Cruz thinks that he's got the answer. I don't know. You might want to let Ted Cruz know what you think about this. Bob's phone seems to have croaked, so he's, he's working on that right now. The Saudis apparently bought Donald Trump for a quarter million dollars. That's how low his price is. Now, you know, it continually amazes me how low the price is to buy a Republican politician. I mean, uh, or any politician for that matter. You look at the people who have been, you know, selling out on net neutrality, right? Brandon Doyle of Pennsylvania took $52,000. Robert Brady from Pennsylvania took $276,000. These are members of Congress who oppose net neutrality. G.K. Butterfield, North Carolina, took $408,000, opposed net neutrality. Matt Cartwright of Pennsylvania took $57,000. Henry Quaylar of Texas took $166,000. Jim Costa took $155,000 from California. Dwight Evans in Pennsylvania took $36,000. Vincente Gonzalez of Texas, he only got $17,500 from the industry, but he's still opposing net neutrality. Gene Green from Texas, $79,000 opposing net neutrality. Brad Schneider of Illinois took 66,000, opposes net neutrality. Tom O'Halloran of Arizona opposes net neutrality. Do we have him back? Well, there he is. His phone is on the line. Okay, Bob, let's try this again. For some reason, sorry about that. That's okay. But MBS, they came out of the meeting. This is the second time, and the end result is they are fast and furious on a bipartisan basis. President Trump is now saying, well, we need to have gasoline stay cheap you know, et cetera, Saudi Arabia, good job on November 21st. Saudi Arabia, of course, is wanting to now cut production. So that excuse for the president supporting MBS, frankly, Tom, is now by the wayside. What do you think of the number one excuse for the president supporting MBS is that MBS spent a quarter million dollars in his hotels? Actually, probably more like a million when you add it all up. Yes, that. And also, look, his son-in-law, it is no secret in D.C. or anywhere, it's an open secret, that he is best friends. He calls Mohammed bin Salman. Jared sir. Kushner. Yeah, Jared Kushner. And his father, you know, tried to borrow money off of Qatar, and we know what all happened with that. But he is best friends with him, and he is the one telling the president, no question about it, you've got to hang in with this, because look, if you hang in with Mohammed bin Salman, and he is deposed, he is still rich, he is still powerful, he still has money. If he's not deposed, he can do one a favor later on, can't he? Right, after Trump leaves office. That's of incredible. Course. That's incredible. Bob Nay with Talk Media News. Bob, I'm Thank sorry you. for the technical problems. That's okay. You know? Thank you. Okay, great talking with you. Tom Hartman here with you. This is probably the thing that accurately illustrates the mentality of Donald Trump more than, than anything else I can think of. President Donald Trump was taken to task on Twitter after a report claimed he shrugged off surging U.S. national debt because it wouldn't happen until he leaves the White House. Seriously. The Daily Beast tweeted this out in early 2017 when senior officials offered Trump charts and graphics. See, they have to do it in pictures. 
for Donald. He can't write something down because he really doesn't read very well. As you can see when he's struggling to read a teleprompter. In early 2017, when senior officials, again, this is in the Daily Beast, when senior officials offered Trump charts and graphics laying out the numbers and showing a hockey stick spike in national debt in the not too distant future, Trump's response was, yeah, but I won't be here. Now, first of all, how did that hockey stick come about? And secondly, you know, how did people respond to Trump saying, yeah, but I won't be here? The, the hockey stick comes about because you have the national debt, but you also have the interest that you have to pay on the national debt. Our national debt is now $21 trillion. If we're paying 2% interest on that, that's what bonds are paying. On $20 trillion, that would be $400 billion a year in interest payments that we're making. But if the rate that treasuries are paying goes up, as it historically has, I mean, the, the historic average is around 5%. So if it goes up to 5% on $20 trillion of debt, you're paying a billion dollars a year in interest. And if we can't afford to pay that billion dollars a year in interest, then we borrow it and our debt becomes $22 trillion. And the next year, the debt is $22 trillion, and we owe you know, $1.2 trillion. Can't afford that, we roll it into the debt. You know, and it's like this, and that's how it starts really amplifying. That when we reach the point where, I mean, right now, our interest payments on the national debt are about half of what we pay for the Pentagon. That's a massive amount of money. It's more than all the federal spending in the United States on social welfare programs exempting the healthcare programs. If you take out Medicare, Medicaid, and those kind of programs, we are spending more on the national debt than we're spending on human beings in the United States, period. Now, I've not been a debt hawk you know, throughout my life. I'm not one of those who get hysterical about the national debt. But this is crazy, the way that Trump is doing this. You know, Trump say, yeah, I won't be here when it happens. Another person tweeted, uh, Keith Boykin tweeted, this also appears to be his philosophy on climate change. Mike Madden tweets, probably should not come as a surprise to learn that a longtime real estate developer whose companies have declared bankruptcy multiple times is not that worried about long-term debt. And at Bunch tweets, breaking, man who bankrupted four businesses not concerned with unsustainable debt. Right. Nancy in Detroit, Michigan, watching on Free Speech TV. Hey, Nancy, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. And I've been wondering this for the past six months at least. Why isn't there a education qualification for someone to become president? Well, we've had presidents who had very little formal education. We've had presidents who've had extraordinary formal educations. I think that the framers of the Constitution, when they were discussing this issue, decided that rather than them deciding who should be future presidents, rather than them deciding what should be the criteria for future presidents, that it should be, to, to paraphrase uh, several of the framers, actually, the people themselves. So. The, the assumption was that through an open political process where candidates for president would compete with each other in a, in a robust and, and public environment, that what would shake out of that, what would come out of that would be the, the people making a good judgment, a good determination. And, you know, obviously with Donald okay. Trump, that's not what happened. <laughs> what what, you what, know what provokes I, the question, Nancy? Originally, I was going to ask, is there a qualification? Because... About 15 years ago, I read a book by the autobiographer of Fred Trump's, his original book. And before he, he died, the autobiographer, he wrote a book that contained information that wasn't in any of the autobiographies of Fred Trump. And in there was the fact that Donald Trump attended grade five twice. Hmm. But he wasn't able to pass it. He flunked it both times, so his father took him out of school. And the word was that his brother, his older brother, would take care of mm -hmm. his younger brother, Donald. But after the older brother committed suicide, and that it was because he was ashamed of his father being the grand wizard of the KKK. I guess the other kids teased him and... He was ashamed of it anyways. That's it. So he ended up killing himself, 
and then Donald was the only one his father could leave his fortune to. Yeah. But but Donald left grade school unable to read anything outside of Dr. Seuss, and still today he has never gone to any other school except when his father put him in that Pennsylvania school just to keep him from being sent to uh, Vietnam. But even the people there said they never saw him with a book. He never went into a classroom. They would yeah. meet him either in a cafeteria well, and that, that, or and, outside. Yeah, and that was back in the 60s. And, you right. know, I was going to MSU back then, and a friend of mine, his first name was Brad, had started a company, actually, doing term papers for students. I mean, it was not uncommon back then for particularly some of the athletic students to hire people to sit in for them in classes, to take tests for them. I wouldn't be at all surprised if, if Trump did that. But I don't, you know, I'll, I don't know anything about the, the biographies, Nancy, or the profile details that you were talking about. So I'll have to look into it. Nancy, thanks a lot for the call and thanks for listening to us. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.